0: Get ready to dive deep and find out why whales are just like us with marine photographer Brian Skerry, whose stunning photos are the subject of a new book from National Geographic. Then we find out how to save those whales from increasing levels of plastic in our interview with recycling expert Jenny Romer. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this is chapter 184 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. for as long as humans have told stories whales have played an outsized role there's the biblical story of jonah and the whale inuit myths about the origin of the orca herman melville's classic moby dick of course and even disney's version of pinocchio the next great whale tale is national geographic secrets of the whales not only is it a gorgeous book? But it's also a four-part Disney Plus original series directed by James Cameron and narrated by Sigourney Weaver. It also features the talents of marine and underwater photographer Brian Skerry. He told me all about the three-year journey to capture these larger-than-life sea creatures.
1: It was a very ambitious project and You know, when I created Secrets of the Whales, it was really over an evolution uh, during the last 10 years or so. My last big whale story for National Geographic was published in 2008. And since that time, I was interested in creating a multi-species story project. But the challenge for me was to find the narrative. You know, how would I connect the dots between these various species? So I was reading a lot of scientific papers and talking to researcher friends and attending conferences. And I saw this theme of whale culture emerging, that some of the latest and greatest science that was being published was revealing that whales have rich cultures like humans, that even within a genetically identical species, they are doing things differently depending where in the world they live. So sperm whales are segregating themselves by language or dialects. A number of families would belong to a clan and they don't intermingle with other sperm whales that speak a different dialect. Or orcas have a preference for international cuisine. They, the ones in New Zealand like to eat stingrays, and they're the only ones in the world that do that. And the orca that live in Patagonia like to eat seal pups, and they are the only ones that do that particular technique. So as I sort of extrapolated and looked at these different species of whales, I realized that this for me was A bit of a game-changer in terms of storytelling that you know a lot of my work has been about individual wildlife species in the ocean or you know problems environmentally and looking at solutions but this was really about a celebration about seeing uh, other species through that lens of culture and while not overtly about conservation it could be maybe the most important conservation message because if we see the world through the lens of these other animals, culture and families and personalities, we might change how we view the natural world.
0: Do you think it's some uh, uh, some part of human arrogance that it's taken us this long to realize that whales have these kinds of cultures?
1: Well, yeah, I think, you know, to some degree, I suppose we could call it arrogance uh, and just a lack of information. You know, I, I do believe that Historically, you know, science and maybe all of us have sort of seen ourselves apart from nature or above it and not necessarily intimately connected to it. Now, that's not always been true. Obviously, a lot of native cultures, uh, indigenous people had a very different view, but I think as as our brains supposedly advanced and we built cities and, you know, towers and all these things and sort of isolated ourselves from nature, we may have lost some of that direct connection and as a result, <clears throat> you know, separated ourselves from nature. But also, you know, some of this science is coming about now, I think largely just due to technology, we can do things that we couldn't have done even just a few years ago. So we're, we're peeling back some of these layers of mystery.
0: Whales have always captured the human imagination, whether right. it's because of the, their sheer size or the just the mysteries uh, of them. Why do you find them so captivating?
1: Well, you make a really good point. Uh, I've often said that, too, that I think humans do feel this, I don't know if it's kinship or just this real attraction to whales uh, you know for much of our human history it was commerce we saw them as you know dollar signs and we killed them for oil and so forth a different mentality different mindset back then but even in my proposals to national geographic i wrote that There's probably a multi-billion dollar whale watching industry on planet Earth, and people go on boats all over the world, and they see a whale breach, and they think it's fantastic, they love it, and then, you know, they eat a hamburger and go home, and they don't really know about their lives, so um, I've had the privilege of being able to do this kind of work for a long time, and I love all creatures in the ocean and photographing them, but... When I'm in the presence of a whale, it is something very special. I mean, these animals have big brains. And, you know, if I'm photographing a little nudibranch or a lobster or something, you know, it maybe the lobster knows I'm there, but I can't imagine that they think too much about me. But when I'm in the presence of a whale and they let me into their world, you know, if they don't swim away and they, they actually engage with me, it, I've often described it as sort of alien you know, species communication. I mean, they are a a large-brained animal. I mean, the sperm whale, for example, has the biggest brain on Earth. And you know that there's a lot of cognition there. They're very intelligent animals, and they, as we're seeing now, have culture. So when when I'm in the presence with them, it's it's especially rewarding. It's this rarefied plane of animal encounter because of, of that cognition, I believe.
0: This might be an unfair question, but while you were were filming these whales, did you happen to have a, a favorite species?
1: Yeah, you know that I, I do get asked that occasionally, and it's such a tough one. It's like picking my favorite child or my favorite photograph or something. It's I I, I tend to refrain from that. But let, let me say this: that first of all, when, whenever I'm out there, I'm just totally engaged with these whales. I mean, up in the Canadian Arctic in this remote place for six weeks uh, with beluga whales, and you hear them, you know, it's sunny, uh, bright, old, 24 hours a day, so I'm in my tent and even at 3 in the morning, I can hear them, you know, this cacophony of chattering out there and you see the little babies with the moms and they're playing around. It's like they're coming to their summer beach resort Um, or when I'm with sperm whales and, you know, I I got to play with a a sperm whale calf, about a six-month-old calf in the waters off of Dominica in the Caribbean for over an hour. She was just sort of playing peekaboo with me in this sargassum weed. It's in the film. Um, and, And, you know, these are moments that... Even as a young boy, I had great dreams, but I could have never imagined. Um, That being said, you know, although they're all fantastic, there is certainly something particularly special about orca. Um, I would argue that they are the most intelligent animal in the ocean. And I write in my book, actually, that being in the presence of an orca is to be scanned by a supercomputer, that they probably know so much about me. They probably know what I had for dinner the night before. And... um, you know, sometimes they're indifferent. They just kind of say, "Oh, there he is," and they go the other way. But when they actually do sort of engage and, and spend time with you, um, it, it's this great joy. I mean, it's it, it really I can't describe it any other way than to say it's like being with an alien because they're a, a, a super intelligent alien, and I can't communicate with them, but. I can swim with them and and they're letting me in, they're letting me see things and part of their world. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's very special. You know, it never gets old.
0: I, I can't even imagine what it, what it must be like to to encounter these animals up close. And, I mean, playing peekaboo with a sperm, baby sperm whale like right? <laughs> that's I incredible.
1: I know. You know, I grew up reading Moby Dick and and thinking of them as leviathans, and they they stirred my soul. I mean, I imagine this mighty whale out there that could smash ships and so forth. But you know, when you see them. Uh, they're, they're so gentle and shy you know I, I gave a, a commencement speech um, a week or so ago in Massachusetts University of Massachusetts and I talked about um, you know slowing down a little bit and, and not being all about vocation and ambition and I and I talked about sperm whales and I said you know here are, are these mighty whales that life is tough in the ocean uh, they spend most of their days in the deep dark ocean foraging for food looking for squid and You know, life can be tough out there. But yet what I saw was that every day or every few days, these families, they belong to matrilineal family units led by the older, wiser females. And every day or so, they come together as a family, and they just socialize up near the surface. They rub against each other. They gently bite. They play. uh, They close their eyes in total bliss. And, you know, what I was telling these students was I said, you know, let's take a lesson from these animals, you know, that they have hard lives too, but they – have learned that family is important that community is important and they make time for that and in the pursuit of your careers and your ambition you know don't lose sight of the little things that that do become the big things it sounds trite but it's but it's true
0: i'm sure you weren't really all that surprised to hear that the pause in human activity around the world because of COVID led to an increase in animal activity, and I know, uh, especially when it came to whales. We, we, I mean, even here in New yeah. York City, we we saw more pop up in the harbor. Yeah, uh, there are stories about how the oceans became so quiet because of uh, shipping and the cruise industry shutting exactly. down. It's kind it, of mind blowing.
1: It, it is, and ocean noise it is a, a immensely serious problem, and it doesn't get a lot of attention. There's so many other you know, maybe, quote, bigger problems affecting the ocean that, that tend to resonate more. But I remember hearing um, several years ago that a study had been done off the mid-Atlantic coast of the United States listening to ocean noise, and they determined that um, there was so much noise from ship traffic and so forth that it wouldn't be approved as an OSHA-safe workplace. Um, so you can imagine for animals that are very much acoustic, they they live acoustically they speak they communicate over distances um they they the whole world is acoustic that all of this increase in ship traffic traffic over the years has really had a detrimental effect i mean the most endangered whale in the world the, the north atlantic right whale um researchers have said over the decades have had to change the octave of of their their communications to compensate for ship traffic so uh
2: and then you know
1: in the arctic You've got whales like uh, beluga whales and narwhals that have pretty much been isolated forever, but now with the <clears throat> excuse me with the ice melting, their world is changing. <clears throat> the Northwest Passage is opening up, and ships are moving in, and uh, <clears throat> it's changing rapidly. You know.
0: Are you hopeful that we can change and and save the planet from climate change?
1: Well, that is the question, isn't it? Um, I, I I would say that I am cautiously optimistic. You know, we we very much live, of course, on a water planet, even though we are terrestrial creatures and see our world that way. If you look at Earth from space, you see instantly that we live on a water planet. Ninety-eight percent of the biosphere, Earth's biosphere, where life can exist is ocean, is water. Every other breath that a human being takes comes from the sea. It is the greatest carbon sink. It takes in more carbon and gives us back more than 50 percent of the oxygen we all breathe. And yet... We have dumped so much carbon into the atmosphere that the ocean's chemistry is changing. It is becoming acidic. We have ocean acidification. It's like a, a sponge that is saturated, can can take on no more. And that acid is eroding everything. We've lost half the world's coral reefs. We've taken 90% of the big fish out of the ocean post-World War II because of industrialized overfishing. We're putting 18 billion pounds of plastic into the ocean every year, chemicals, all of these things. So, But climate is the big, big question. And I would say, very long-winded answer to your question, but I would say that, um, you know, there are definitely reasons to be hopeful. I mean, today, President Biden announced that, you know, we're going to reduce our our carbon footprint. You know, I think America plays a big role in this, and we can lead by example, and I think other countries will follow suit, and certainly even industry. I mean, we see Detroit doing this, and we see other industries, you know, making an effort to, to do that. So I think... I think we're living at a pivotal moment in history where maybe for the very first time in human history, we understand the problems and the solutions. And the question is, will we simply bear witness to the demise or will we, as Cousteau urged a generation ago, protect what we love? I'm cautiously optimistic that we will do the latter, but it's going to take a battle. It's going to take fighting and good science and good storytelling, I believe, to to move that needle in that direction. And, and the window is closing. So, you know, the, the time is limited.
0: Whenever I do an interview like this, I always like to ask a question about what an individual themselves, what's the one thing that they can do? Because I think for a lot mm. of people, you know, that the problem is just too big for them to wrap their minds around. And they kind of yeah. they, they can descend into despair thinking there's nothing me as a single individual can do. What right. can somebody do today to help protect the oceans?
1: I, you know, my answer to that, Lisa, is to become, and this may be a little broad, but to become an informed consumer and an informed citizen. So what does that mean? You know, everybody has busy lives, right? We only have so much bandwidth and we've got to put food on the table and do our jobs and take the kids to soccer practice. And, you know, there's a lot going on. I, I get that. But the more that you know, the the better choices you make as a consumer, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to Walmart, when you go to wherever, um, the things you buy or don't buy will send a message. So w- when it comes to the food you eat, you know, if you're eating red meat every night, that has a huge carbon footprint. You can reduce that, maybe eat poultry uh, more often, or if you're eating seafood, there are better choices. Um, but you need to be A little bit more informed about it you can download one of these you know seafood watch cards from the Monterey Bay Aquarium or from National Geographic or the New England Aquarium a lot of places have it and they'll tell you what are the better species to eat Um, that's not overly difficult it takes a little effort but you can and those do make a real impact um, being an informed citizen, you know, voting for candidates that believe in science and conservation. You know, if they're, if if you're voting for somebody who doesn't believe in climate change in in 2021, that's a problem. I mean, we, we only have a short amount of time. You know, I have two daughters, and I want them to live on a healthy, thriving planet with biodiversity. But right now, it's not going in the right way. So, I think you know, the more we know, read, read newspapers, read magazines, uh, you know, good good stuff. Get- good, truthful sources of, of information. So it's not easy. I get it. But but that's what I think we need to do. It, it goes back to well, I think it was Margaret Mead that said, never underestimate the power of a dedicated group of individuals or, or even a single individual to change the world, because indeed, that's the only thing that has ever changed the world. So I think we can do it. But, you know, people need answers. They need solutions. And I get that all the time. You know, so what What can I do? You know, stop using single-use plastic containers, you know, get a stainless steel water bottle, fill it when you go to the airport or when you travel around during the day, uh, make choices about dinner, eat more vegetables, you know. Um, there, there are simple things anybody can do and they can feel good about doing it.
0: And I think also um, reading books like the one they have coming out now and the Disney Plus special, I think that too is gonna to really help people realize there's a lot at stake here. It's not just yeah. whether yeah. or not we have more rain or something like that, you know?
1: No. That's right. And and you know, again, as I mentioned, um in my work this sort of narrative arc where a lot of the work I was doing in, you know, even a decade ago or more recently was very, you know, war photography. Like it was doom and gloom. I was taking pictures of, of swordfish and nets in Europe and, and sharks being finned on the beaches and talking about a hundred million sharks being killed every year. And I still do that because I think we need to, we need to have a, a, an accurate view of what's going on on our planet. Um, But we really need solutions as well. We need to know, as you described, what what we can do to make things better. You know, we need more marine protected areas in the ocean. Science tells us we need 30 to 40 percent of the world's oceans protected. And today we're lucky if we're at 5 percent. So we have a long way to go. Um, but that being said, you know, a decade ago, we were at 1 percent. So we are making some progress. And with whales, with Secrets of the Whales, you know, as I said, for me as a storyteller, this was a really unique project because I wasn't Showing bad news, I wasn't beating people over the head with doom and gloom and dead animals and nets and so forth. It was a celebration. It's it's the latest science that's revealing these human-like traits and these charismatic ocean animals. But while you can just be entertained by that and that's great, on a different level, I'm hoping that readers or audiences will will take away the fact that wow, you know, there's a lot more going on out there. And once you know about these families that are celebrating the birth of new babies and mourning the grief of of their loved ones and playing games and singing songs and passing on these ancestral traditions to their children and you know generational learning once you know that you you can't unknow it and and maybe we become better stewards of the planet just by virtue of the fact that we care a little bit more you know
0: i know i for one can't wait to go through the whole book watch the whole series Do everything I can. Brian Scary. thank you for all your time today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Lisa. It's a real pleasure.
0: It's been almost a week since Earth Day, so let's check in. How are you doing with your promise to treat the planet better? If you haven't gotten around to it yet, then maybe I can help. Jenny Romer So just is in time for Earth Day and environmental we're joined by activist Recycling expert Book Jenny Romer. who's out with a new book Can I Recycle This, new offers book, up tips? this As well A Guide a to Better Recycling to and that How to Reduce Single Use plastics. plastics. Now, we're taught from a young age that recycling is one of the ways we can reduce our impact on the environment. But I have to say it's really disappointing to find out via your book that only nine percent of all the plastics ever produced have been recycled. How can that possibly be true?
2: Well, the truth is that a lot of that single-use plastic really doesn't have a buyer. No one wants to buy it, and uh, it's not really recyclable in the first place.
0: So do we know what percentage of recyclables uh, that are collected are actually recycled?
2: I don't have an exact number for that it really depends on where you are and what type of plastic you're talking about but i spend a lot of time looking at what we call end markets for recycling so whether there's a producer on the other end that wants to buy it and so we've seen that uh, some plastics are really worth a lot and there's a big demand for them so for example milk jugs which is hdpe plastic resin number two those are worth about $1,000 a ton on the commodities market. And plastics number three through seven, which is the lower value plastic, those are only worth about negative $20 a ton, which means you have to pay someone to take those away.
0: So why are most of the things that we think are recyclable really aren't?
2: There are a couple of different things. One big thing is plastic resins. So um, number one and number two, kind of the, the lower the number of, of plastic resin, and the res- resin is just is the little number that's in the middle of the chasing arrow symbol on a lot of the plastic packaging. Uh, those are, are generally higher value, and the, the higher numbers, uh, number three th- through seven, are, are lower value. Um, and so that's one thing is what, what is it actually made of? Plastic isn't just one thing. What type of plastic is it? Uh, another thing is uh, the size. So smalls, that's kind of the industry term for small pieces of plastic, uh, those tend to be really difficult to recycle uh, in the recycling machinery. So things like bottle caps that aren't attached to bottles, they tend to fall through the cracks in recycling machinery uh, and aren't, aren't actually recycled. And then one other thing is are tanglers. So things like plastic bags and other plastic films those tend to get tangled in all the, all the um, moving parts of recycling machinery, and those are, don't actually get recycled, and they actually hinder the recycling for other more valuable products because they get wrapped around those products or they, get, um, or they clog the machinery. I'm
0: glad you mentioned the little numbers in in, in that triangle of arrows, because I was always under the impression that if a product was stamped with that, that meant you could recycle it. But that's not true, is mm-hmm. what you're saying.
2: Yeah, that's not true. And you thinking that that means that the product is going to be recycled is not a mistake. That's something that the, where the plastics industry has really spent a whole lot of money on lobbying and public relations to have people have that feeling that when they put... When they see that, that it's called a Mobius loop, the chasing arrow symbol. When they see that on a, on a package, that that package is going to be recycled. And to feel get a real warm, fuzzy feeling when they put that into their recycling bin. Um, but in truth, that really just identifies what resin the product is made from.
0: If you're game, I'd like to run through a list of things and you can tell us if they're easily recyclable or not.
2: Sure. Pizza boxes. Pizza boxes are recyclable for the most part, but you have to make sure that they aren't full of grease. So I have a little graphic in the book about about what to do with your pizza box. Um, if it doesn't have grease on it, if your liner was able to catch all the grease, then that's generally recyclable. Um, but sometimes maybe you just have to rip off the, box, the top of the box, which is clean, and recycle only the top. So it depends on the grease level.
0: What about the little plastic tables that come in the box?
2: not recyclable. So that kind of falls into the small category of something that really isn't going to make it through the machinery at the recycling facility.
0: Other plastic takeout containers?
2: For the most part, not recyclable. Uh, The lower numbers are more likely to be recycled. So if you look at the chasing arrow symbol at the bottom of the container, if it's a number one, um, maybe that'll be recycled. It'll kind of get mixed in with the bottle's the bottles and jugs that are also number one. If it's a number six, pretty much no chance that it's going to actually be recycled into something else. But I would say follow your local jurisdiction's rules. They've made some calculations about what they want to accept, what kind of machinery they have, what kind of markets they have. Um, so make sure to follow your your local rules with that.
0: Oh, that leads to my next question, something like a peanut butter jar.
2: Peanut butter jar, probably if it's made from, you know, from Plastic, it's probably going to be um, number two or number five plastic. If your jurisdiction accepts it, spend the time, clean it out, put it into your bin. Um, and it also might be glass. Uh, glass is, def- is inert. Um, if you, I try to look for getting my peanut butter in glass jars.
0: And, and no reflection on your book, but are books recyclable?
2: Yes, it depends on the book. Hardcover books uh, are not, the covers are not recyclable. So you'd have to kind of rip out the other pages. But I would say don't go to recycling first. Definitely try to go to reuse first. So, you know, donate to your to your local or try to sell maybe to your local bookstore. Otherwise, donate your books uh, and let someone else use them rather than resorting to the recycling bin.
0: Tell us why reducing and reusing are so much better than recycling.
2: So we've all learned the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. A lot of us just remember the recycle part um, because that's really been the emphasis for a long time. But reusing and reducing are are so much more important because we avoid all of the extraction that, ha- that, ne- that happens in order to make those products. So extraction meaning um, Meaning extraction of petroleum to make plastic, uh, extraction of bauxite or to make aluminum, uh, and those are those, that's really harmful. And the whole recycling process really takes a whole lot of greenhouse gases, as far as the collection and the sorting and the processing and the transport. So we can avoid all that by by reducing, source reducing, um, and reusing to begin with. So one big take home, um, I am a bit of a downer as far as a lot of these things not being recyclable. But one thing we can do is is reduce as much as we can. So you know, things like bringing your own bag to the store um, and expanding beyond that to bring your own coffee mug, bring your own water bottle, bring your own utensils. Utensils are a big thing that are not recyclable because of their shape and because of the, the type of resin they're generally made out of.
0: So that means I get points for keeping silverware at the office?
2: Yes, major points. Um, (laughs) I've worked in quite a few uh, corporate law firms, and I can't tell you how many people will use, you know, go to the corporate cafeteria and use a new plastic fork for each meal. So that's a big thing that you can do, keeping a a metal or a reusable uh, utensils at your desk.
0: Now, do you think with, with so many people who've been working from home from this past year, that's something that maybe doesn't come into play because they're not in the office using the paper coffee cups or the styrofoam cups, God forbid, or the plastic utensils mm-hmm. every day? Do you do you think that's something that it's a habit that they'll just revert to when they're right back in the office or maybe being at home and using their own stuff, they'll realize they've had less of an impact?
2: I would like to think so, <laughs> that people w- would would bring their or use their own coffee mugs, use their own silverware more. But I think that it's really part of our culture that we're really getting so many of these single-use things. So I'm hoping that with the book, with realizing that a lot of this stuff is not recyclable, will help shift that mindset a little bit. Um, And one other thing with during the pandemic is that we've really seen such so much more um, takeout and delivery food. And so a lot of those come kind of automatically at this point with... Uh, with single-use utensils, and so that's something that should be more more easily avoidable. A lot of the time, if even if you ask for no utensils, you'll get them anyway. And so, trying to shift away from from that as well, especially when people are at home and have their own utensils available.
0: Do you <laughs> think that if everybody were to just take this one step to trying to reduce the amount of single-use plastic in in their lives, that we could clean up the planning, could clean up all the plastic that's out there?
2: yeah, I'd say I'm a downer as far as some of the information that I'm coming that i'm uh, that i'm that I'm communicating, but I would say I'm optimistic that we can fix this. You know I've spent the last fifteen years researching plastics and recycling, going to conferences, webinars, recycling tours, and you know I've learned what we can do to make to make this work, to make to make recycling more effective, to source reduce and um, to work. And I I work on policies. I'm an attorney at the Surfrider Foundation, and I spend my time working on plastics reduction policies. So I'm optimistic that we can make a difference through individual actions, through people bringing their own everything, um, and to and making the different decisions at the supermarket when purchasing products and packaging, um, and through policy. So I've worked on the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act at the federal level, and that's really looking at plastics comprehensively through the whole life cycle um, to reduce plastics and everything that comes along with them, all the emissions and and impacts.
0: I have to say, I think we all have our our jobs cut out for us, but I think if people can walk away from this interview and from reading your book knowing that their individual actions can make a difference, I think, that will lead us to a better planet.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, And like I said, I'm optimistic that we can do it.
0: We've been talking with Jenny Romer. The book is Can I Recycle This? A Guide to Better Recycling and How to Reduce Single-Use Plastics. Thank you for your time today and happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we chat with powerhouse author John Grissom about his new thriller, which trades the courtroom for the basketball court. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.